<clears throat> hey, so for what it's worth, before we begin today, we're in a, um, a new series. We're starting a study of creation uh, and that we launched last week when John Mark Hicks was here. Uh, and we'll have uh, sermons over the next uh, few weeks as well. And in our adult classes, uh, our adult and teen classes are all uh, working on a study of creation over uh, the next quarter. And if, it's a great time to be, begin a new class. And so if you haven't been a part of one of our adult classes today, I want to encourage you to go ahead and, and just jump in one today, okay? Uh, and find, a, find somebody that, uh, that you want to go to class with or whatever, and, and just, or just walk into a random room. It doesn't really matter how you choose, okay? Uh, they're all going to be studying the same thing, uh, and uh, it's going to be great, okay? This, this, this study really has the capacity. I, I have come to believe more and more that when we have a good fundamental foundational understanding of creation, what it means, what the creation means to God, what it means as a part of our theology, uh, then we are much more poised to be able to live faithfully and to live uh, in partnership with what God is doing in the world. Because what God is doing in the world now is, was expressed by what God was doing in the very beginning. And creation, a theology of creation, holds the seeds that can bear the fruit of mission. Okay? And so that's the way I'm thinking about this, this study. I've really enjoyed uh, preparing for it my own self. Uh, and I, I think, I really believe that it has, it's one of those things that will have the capacity. It, it'll be the kind of thing that you think about in the shower. I don't know if that's a great preview for a series, but that's the way I feel about it. I think this will be the kind of series that you'll find yourself thinking about during the week as you think about what it means to live out, live out your faith. So I just want to encourage you to be a part of that. Jump in somewhere today. It's a familiar trope in news stories that as you see the unfolding of whatever dramatic event is ta has taken place, that somewhere along the way, it almost ha there almost has to be an interview with a neighbor, right? And so whether it's a, a story that is macabre or whether it's something, uh, some brilliant surprise, uh, there's almost always an interview with the neighbor saying, well, I can't believe it. He just seemed like a normal guy. They really just seemed like every day, nothing seemed special about them at all. And then it turns out they got bodies in the basement. Or they're a, you know, a multi-millionaire despite their modest living as, uh, and, and work. Or whatever the story is. You know what I'm talking about? That story that reveals that the neighbor has a secret. And of course the news, story, the, the, the news organizations, they do that because it plays on something within us. That we love to have curiosity and love to have our imagination stoked about what could be happening uh, behind closed doors. There's something in all of us that is... Uh, very familiar, uh, reminds me of little Scout Finch in To Kill a Mockingbird, right? Who had invented all of these things about her neighbor, Boo Radley. And the, and the truth about who Boo Radley was was actually more brilliant than anything Scout had made up, but it was completely different. We love a story with a neighbor with a secret. And buddy, have I got a news story for you today. I've got a little inside information. I know a secret. 
I know a secret about your neighbor. In fact, it's so, so shocking and so astonishing that if I can convince you that it's true, it'll change the way you think about everything you know about your neighbor. You know, one of those secrets that makes you kind of like rethink everything that's happened before? If I can convince you that it's true, it'll change every interaction that you have with your neighbor from now on. It'll change everything that you think about them. Your neighbor is a creature. Now, at this time of year, I have to be careful saying something like that, okay? Because you may be picturing the swamp thing or a zombie or maybe Frankenstein's monster. I don't know uh, what it is that you have to uh, you know, imagine when you think about uh, the things that go bump in the night. But not the kind of creature that undergoes some sort of secret uh, transformation in their face or their body and all that kind of stuff. But your neighbor's fundamental identity on this earth is that they are a creature. In the most literal sense of that term, they are a created being. They were made by someone. Wipe out everything else you know about humanity and start with this. Put this at the, as the bottom building block on the tower that you construct about who people are. They are, before they are anything else, before they are anything else, they are a creature, a being made by the hand of of God. And you may say to yourself, well, that's not such a shocking secret. But I say you haven't thought through the implications very well. Because if we can get our imaginations around the reality that every person that we know, every single human being that we interact with is a created being of God. I think that changes pretty much everything. Not just a random creation, not just a throwaway thing that God made and just flung out into the world and didn't care anything about, but your neighbor is a, cre a creature who is of a special quality, of a special kind. They're a human creature, which means that they were made stamped with the image of God within them. Now, in our classes today, we're going to spend a little time thinking about what that exactly means, like what the image of God uh, means. But I want to say just very quickly in, in this time today, uh, up here, is that it means partly that God has placed some sort of Himself into them into their being, into their person, into the essence of who they are. That the most human part of any of us is our creatureness before God. It's the thing that God made us into. And that part is, bears His 
divine image. Think about how shocking it is that every person you know is a representation, intended to be a representation of God's own being. Can you believe it? He seemed like a normal guy. And yet that shocking truth is just one of the crazy things about what it means to be human. And when Genesis 1 tells us that, uh, in, that God created humanity, it says that in the image of God, He created them. He placed His image within them. And you may say, hey, preacher man, that's all right, but that was like the beginning. But isn't that something that sin kind of takes away and we lose that image of God? And that's, I, I, I don't think that's right. Because the story that goes from the, the Genesis 1 continues to bring up that imageness along the way. And so you have things like in Genesis 9. Now, Genesis 9, a lot of bad sins happened already. God's already flooded the earth at one point, okay? In Genesis 9, there's, this, there's a, 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 re, a reimagining of humanity. Noah's there. He's kind of like another Adam in some ways, kind of rebooting the earth. And God tells Noah that whoever takes human life will be held accountable because they are made in God's image. Maybe you're more familiar with the part in James chapter 3 where James is giving us some ethics of speech, I, uh, important wisdom about how we use our words in the world and the, the kinds of things that we do with our tongues. And James says to the people in, in, in that church, he's, and I, I think he has some very specific things in mind, but he says, with your mouth, with the same mouth, with the same tongue, you bless God. You praise God. And then he says, and you curse humans who are made in God's image. He says, my brothers, it should not be so. So there's a continuation of that image, right? It's not all gone. No, the Genesis 9 thing is saying we're still accountable for taking each other's lives, for holding each other's lives, because the image of God is still there within us. And James says we're responsible for how we speak to each other because it's like we're speaking to an image of God. See, that image is still there. Now, right now, the people that we know are still images of God. Now, does that blur, is that image blurred? Is it harder to see because of the reality of human sin and brokenness? Yes! Very much so. But just because it's harder to see doesn't mean it's not still there. Behind the mask, behind what's visible, behind what we know, there, imprinted on every single human, still is the image of the divine God. The mark of the Creator. The New Testament goes on to tell that story in some pretty interesting ways. One of them is in Colossians 3. Can we look at that real quick? Can you look at Colossians 3? Now the book of Colossians opens with this song about Jesus, which starts out in chapter 1, verse 16, where it says, He is the what? He is the image, what does it say? 
Who knows it? Come on, somebody knows that. He is the image of the invisible God. Okay? And that's part of the praise that the church sings to Jesus. But later on, in this same letter, Paul is writing to this uh, Colossian church. And in verse 9, he says, chapter 3, verse 9, Do not lie to each other, seeing that you stripped off the old self with its practices and have clothed yourselves with the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge according to the image of its creator. In other words, what Paul is saying is that that same image that the church recognizes in Jesus and praises in Jesus, that that is the image that is being renewed within us as humans. As people who are followers of Christ and who are following the Spirit and allowing God's Spirit to do its formative work on us, part of what's happening is that we're being reshaped and reformed and renewed. We're being scrubbed down so that what was at our essence in the beginning can again shine through. When we're all cleaned up, we can again more fully reflect the image of God. See, the image of God is not something that just was about this way that we were created in Genesis in the beginning. It's a truth about who we were, but also about who we are and about who we will be, who we're becoming, who God is in the process of making us again right now. It's right in the truth of who we are. We are images of God. And we may have trouble seeing that in each other because of the brokenness and because of the sin. But do you know who doesn't have trouble seeing through that stuff and seeing that core of who we are? God is not fooled. And God always sees the truth of who we are. Of course, God sees our sin and God sees our brokenness, but God never, has never been fooled into thinking that was the center of who we are. God knows that at the beginning, He formed us in His own image. And He is forever recreating that image within us. The truth about your neighbor that I want you to own and accept, continue to investigate and see if you can, see if you can begin to perceive it with every person that you meet. The secret, the shocking, astonishing reality about your neighbor is this. Your neighbor is an image of the living God. Doesn't that change everything? Genesis says it should make us think twice about killing each other. James says it ought to make us think twice about the way that we talk to each other. I think it changes everything. I want to tease that out by saying, by giving four people real quickly that I want you to think about how it, can cha- how it changes the way that you might think about them. The first one is, fair, uh, is I think it changes the way you think about your friend who is in need. Okay, 
The person that you love, that you recognize has uh, needs, that is in some kind of struggle and has some kind of uh, reason that they're in need. And that can be a wide range of things. It can be that they're struggling emotionally because of some uh, thing that's happening in their life. They're struggling physically because of some disease or struggling financially. Who knows what it is, okay? But I know that we all encounter friends who are in need. And it hurts us when we realize that our friends have needs that we can't resolve. Isn't that painful? When your friend needs something, you know you can't really do anything about it. And it's easy to begin to believe that that person is on the outs with God. I mean, that's the whole story of Job, right? His friends, even though apparently they cared for Job, they've come to believe that, man, God just must have it in for him or something like that. Let me tell you a reality of your friend that's in need. Okay? That person is an image of the divine God. They are a creature of God and they are beloved of God. You don't love your friend as much as God does. You don't. I mean, think about that. Hold this, hold this for just a second. Think about that person you love the most in the world. Think about that person that you just, I mean, you really adore and love, and you love sacrificially that you would be willing to give so much for that person if you could and if it would help. Okay, hold that person in your head and realize that the love that you have for them ain't nothing compared to what God, the maker, has for them. Isn't that astonishing? I mean, you know that person. You've come to love that person. You've interacted with that person for who knows how long and in what kind of circumstances. I know you got history with that person that makes you love them. you got things that you like about them that makes you love them. And God has more. God's got more history. God sees us deeper. And God's love for each of us goes further and deeper than any of us could know or approach. God's love for your friend who is struggling is more deeply compassionate than anything that we can muster up. In fact, what we muster up is part, I think, a reflection of God's love for them. But it's not as powerful as the real thing. It's not as strong. It's not as sacrificial. Your friend in need is deeply beloved by God. Doesn't that change the way that you think about them? I mean, we pray to people, we pray to God uh, on the behalf of people, and we say, you know, God, we love this person. We want, we we wish this for them. We want this. I mean, the God that we speak to about our friend in need already deeply loves that person even more than we do. Isn't that amazing? Doesn't that change the way that you think about that prayer a little bit? And truly, when you think about that person as a, a mark of the divine love, then maybe it changes the way, things that we interact with, uh, how we try to help them. Maybe it changes the depth of compassion that we have over them, or the way that we, uh, uh, maybe it stokes and, and creates even more desire for us to help them or to do what we can for their sake. But we only approximate God's own love for them. Because God sees within them that mark of his own being 
God sees within them that they are a beloved creature made in his own image, and he loves them deeply. So that's the first one. How about the second one, though? Your enemy. That person that gets under your skin the most. That person who has, seems to go out of their way to do you harm. That person that greatly either annoys you or causes great fury within you. Some of you have not had trouble thinking about who this person is yet, but the rest of it we can go on. Maybe it's somebody you know. Maybe it's somebody you don't. But get this. Your enemy, as much as it pains me to say it, has a shocking surprise. And they may not have bodies in the basement, but they've got something within themselves that if we could only see it, Though it may be hidden, it may be covered over by layers of sin and brokenness and some destructive behaviors. Indeed, destructive behaviors that would require you to set some boundaries between you and them. That person, your enemy, is a beloved child of God marked with the divine image. Who can believe it? Who can believe it? I think this stands behind the Christian ethic of uh, nonviolence and the Christian ethic of learning how to, to love our enemies and to pray for those that persecute us, right? Because we believe that even those bad behaviors, those sin behaviors that are on the, on the top layer and may go very deeply within people, deep into their hearts, they are not the last word and they're not the most true thing about human beings. The most true thing about a human, the, the, the fundamental building block at the bottom of the stack is that they are a creature stamped with the image of the divine God. It changes how we talk to them. It changes our desire to kill them. It changes everything. So our friend and our enemy. But most people in this world don't fall into those categories, do they? The vast majority of people on this planet have not yet earned your status as your beloved friends, and they probably haven't earned status as your enemies yet either, right? The biggest category is the stranger. The person that you encounter just in a moment of chance or the vast, vast, vast majority of people who will live secret lives to you, unseen, unknown. The most shocking thing about this whole sermon to me it's not just that our enemy is the image of God, because we can kind of see their humanity if we'll try a little bit. It's not just that my friend is a beloved child of God. It's that there are several billion of them walking around on this planet. Several billion people all stamped with the image of God. 
And so in the course of our lives, we encounter people who begin our our relationship as strangers. We meet them at work. We meet them in the coffee shop. We meet them at school, maybe at church. You might have encountered a stranger this morning, probably two or three or maybe a few dozen. They're all over the place. You ever thought about how many strangers there are in the world? There's a lot. Some of them are really strange. And no matter how strange, and no matter how unique, no matter how unknown to us they are, there's something that you can know about them. There's something that you can know about every human you meet before they tell you their name or where they're from or where they go to school or where they work. You already know something deep about every stranger on this planet. They are images of the divine God. So while the world would tell us to regard strangers with fear and suspicion, and certainly there's some wisdom in holding ourselves you know, with some distance, I suppose, the most true thing about other people is not the part of them that could hurt you. It's the part that you share with them that is your creatureness, your imageness, the part of you that is made in God's own image. The fourth, the fourth is the one who helped us see the stranger. The fourth is the one that helps us understand our enemy the fourth is the one that helps us learn to love our friends in an even deeper level the fourth image of God is Jesus like I said Paul starts off Colossians by thinking about Jesus as the image of the invisible God and that thought is all over the New Testament it shows up in Hebrews it shows up in Corinthians shows up all over the place okay that Jesus is a reflection of the most central thing about God. And the reason that was such a shocking truth for the ancient world is not that there would be some godlike figure, okay? The shocking thing about Jesus' imageness of God is that his imageness was also right there with his humanness. That Jesus represented God, was God reflected God's truth at the same time that he was just another carpenter from Nazareth. Just another dude. Just a guy living his life with a few secrets. Can you imagine the people that first understood who Jesus was there in Nazareth? He seemed like just a normal guy. I don't know. He just was over there carving wood. I don't know what. And yet Jesus' secret that would be revealed for all the world that we're still coming to understand and study and, and figure out is that Jesus was the image of the invisible God. And not only that Jesus was the image of God, just Him uniquely, and that's true, but Jesus was the image of the God 
who was helping us all, helping all of us recognize it in each other and in ourselves too. Jesus is the image of God who helps scrub down every other dusty, old, broken image. He is the restorer. Going in and polishing things up and taking off the layers of the stuff that didn't look like God anymore. Jesus shows us what it looks like to be God's image. He teaches us a new way of life. And Jesus is the one who helps us. And that's what Colossians is saying, right? Because we come into contact with Jesus, who is the image of God, and because Jesus comes in contact with us, and he, and he uh, you know, adopts us into his family, Jesus isn't just uniquely out there by himself representing God anymore. He's calling us. Back to the truest part of ourselves. Jesus leads the way. Jesus leads the way to us uncovering what it means for, to, for us to really be the image of God in the world. And He leads the way for us to understand that those people that are in my life who I deeply love, those people in my life who I struggle with loving and those people in my life who I don't really know at all. Jesus helps me see all of them as images of God. And he teaches me to love them in the same way that God loves them too. He is the image of the invisible God. And you are too. And so is your neighbor. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is that God has not abandoned any of those creatures whom He loves and He holds dear. Even when we were enemies with God, Jesus pursues us and finds a way for us to be made new again, to restore us, for us to be made Again, renewed, like Colossians says, in the image of our Creator. I think it's when we begin to own that for ourselves and begin to own that for the other people in our lives that we begin to follow Jesus in the way of, uh, in, in His way. That we both, the, and, and, and understanding that begins to lead us in, into the way we, uh, we, we treat each other as neighbors, whether we're, uh, you know, the people that we know very well or whether we're Samaritans that seem like we're enemies to start with. And then it changes the way that we see God too. Because we begin to perceive in the reflections of things that are good and holy and true in each other. We begin to see something of God's nature. That's what we were meant to do. We were meant to teach each other about God. And in the church, as Jesus cleans us up and polishes us, I believe that that is what's happening to his glory forever and ever. Hey, if there's something that you need to say to the church, or if you want to confess uh, your own sinfulness, you want to come and receive the gospel of Jesus today. Come become a, 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 a person who's following along his way and who wants to learn that, that kind of life who wants to get rid of all the other like, um, masks that you yourself wear 
reclaim that image of God that's within you, or if you're somebody that just wants to uh, learn how to see other people, love other people like Jesus does, then the invitation is for you while we stand and sing together.